This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this last day in January to the Bible line. If you are a new listener, either online at WAGP.net or here at 88.7 FM, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you're trying to understand in terms of its meaning or application or a personal challenge in your life and ministry that you're looking for biblical counsel on. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. Again, as you just heard, you can contact us on the South Carolina Exchange, the 843 Exchange, and that's 525-1859, or toll-free at 877, the call letters WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. I will say, as always, that When you call, you're certainly free to simply dictate your question, or you can go on the air live, however you're comfortable. So with that said, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, Walt. All right. Yes, sir. Our first question comes from Elena, who is out of Massachusetts. She says, I am 15 years old and from Massachusetts. Today, I was reading the Bible with my dad and came across a few verses I was unsure about. In Revelation 19.21, who are the birds in this context? The verse itself is confusing to me, so I was wondering if you could briefly summarize or explain to me what it's saying. All right, Elena, so glad you're listening this morning. We broadcast uh, a few stations now in Boston and out of Worcester there in the state of Massachusetts, and the context is the second coming of Christ. It begins in 11 where he says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness He judges and wages war. So this is the Lord Jesus coming back from heaven. First, he meets us in the rapture. We're caught up in the air. He takes us to heaven. So he comes first for his saints, then he comes back with his saints. And so this is the second half, we might say, of the second coming. And, of course, he's identified as Jesus as such. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. By the way, that's a title that is given to both God the Father and God the Son, as you might expect, because they are equal. Jesus said, to see me, you've seen the Father. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven. So we're talking about actual birds that fly in the sky. And again, sometimes if you're unsure in the meaning of a verse, Alina, and I'm just thrilled, 15 years old, you're studying God's Word like this, and you may not know it, but I have preached through the book of Revelation every single verse. There's 72 hours of preaching, and if you download the Search the Scriptures app with your parents' permission, go to the App Store and just type in Search the Scriptures. It's .org, not com, .org. You can click on the books of the Bible I've preached on, and Revelation is one such book. 
And so come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all the men, both free and great and slaves and small and great. And so free men and slaves and small and great. What's he talking about? This, of course, is at the conclusion, and I have a whole message on this. It's at the conclusion of what's popularly called the Battle of Armageddon, probably better to refer to it as the Campaign of Armageddon. And they're in the Jezreel Valley opposite Armageddon, that little mountain called Megiddo. Uh, All of the uh, nations of the world will gather, and they will march against Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus will come back and he'll make war with all these armies and all these kings of the earth. And of course, it's at this point that the Bible says the beast was seized and with him the false prophet and all who performed the signs in his presence and so on. So this all happens at the second coming. So what's happening? Well, there's millions of dead people all slaughtered across the field. How are they going to die? By the word of his mouth, he's just going to say, drop dead and they'll be dead, and the blood will be soaked all over the ground. The horses will be running wild, so much blood on the ground that the blood comes up. The Scripture says the horse's bridle. If you've ever seen a horse running out on a muddy lawn or muddy field, the mud will come all the way up to the bridle, and there will be so much blood in the earth on the ground that it will splash up, and the birds will be called for a cleanup. You know, Israel is on the juncture of three major continents. Uh, God willing, we are have a trip scheduled to go to Israel in September of 2023. And by the way, if there's someone listening and you're interested in that, you'll want to come to the informational meeting this Sunday at Community Bible Church immediately after the 11 o'clock service, or you can live stream. It will be five minutes after the 11 o'clock service ends, so you'll see a countdown clock. And this, again, is only for people who are not signed up, but for those who are considering it. And the trip's almost full, but uh, we still have room for about another dozen or so. If that's of interest to you, you'll want to sign up uh, or find out more. But what I'm saying is when you're in Israel, if you're there at a certain time, and we happened to be there one year in the fall, and it was just a sight to see, literally millions of birds. They say 500 million birds fly across Israel twice a year. And so there on the convergence of three great continents, God will call the birds and he'll say, go to eat. And they will literally eat the flesh of these kings. You know, um, I have a friend and he said, I used to despise these turkey buzzards that we have here in South Carolina. But then I realized they were God's garbage cans, that, that, that God uses them to clean up, you know, dead possums and raccoons and deer or whatever else is killed on the side of the road, and they'll eat its flesh. They will eat the flesh of men that day. Uh, their bodies will be picked away by birds. So that's what it's referring to. So here's a general principle, because what we're talking about, here's a 50-cent word for you. Alina, it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how do we interpret the Bible? And so God placed within the Bible how to interpret the Bible. 
And so you take what we call a historical grammatical plain interpretation. Sometimes people will call it a literal interpretation, but that can be misunderstood because we're not ignoring symbols or figures of speech or the like when God uses them. But when we understand an idiom or a figure of speech, what it means, then we literally uh, apply it to our lives. And so in the plain sense makes good sense. You shouldn't seek any other sense or you will come up with nonsense. So when he's talking about birds, he means just that, birds, literal birds, nothing weird or fancy or just just birds, and they're going to do exactly what Jesus said. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl, I believe we have a live caller on line one. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, Long story short, semi-short, uh, I've been asked to be a deacon at uh, my church that I've been going to for about the past year. Um, I would love to serve as a deacon, but what, what I've seen from home Bible studies, that uh, about two out of the 10-ish current deacons have uh, quite a bit of alcohol in their house. Uh, I brought this concern up to the head pastor and through that talk, he, he pretty much said he feels like he can't tell people not to drink, and uh, he's pretty much okay as long as long as they're not getting drunk. So I was just, you know, wanting to get some guidance from, from you. Yeah, no, it's a good question, and I appreciate it. I wish I had my computer here in front of me because I could read to you some of the questions that we ask of a deacon, a potential deacon who might serve in that office. There's just two ongoing offices in the New Testament church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. And the office of uh, deacon, in terms of its requirements, are spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And he drops a word in there about deacons' wives as well, because deacons are often in situations where they have to minister with their wives. And some men are qualified, but their wives disqualify them from serving in that particular office. But when we, um, when we ask deacons about serving, one of the questions we have is their use of alcohol and tobacco. We don't want smoking deacons. You know, I remember going to a church in North Carolina, and we were on vacation, and between services you had all these deacons out on the front uh, steps of the church lighten up. And, you know, I thought, my, what a terrible, terrible testimony uh, for the cause of Christ. And I think, in my judgment, that it's very unwise to have a deacon who uses alcohol. Now, understand, there is, in a broad sense, a direct condemnation against drunkenness. And so if a church member, someone who's become a member of a local assembly, not just an attender, but a member, and that's one of the reasons for membership— is that there's a certain degree of accountability. People can come and be on drugs, and they could be in uh, some immoral relationship or living as, as a lesbian or as a homosexual, and everyone is welcomed. But when you become a member of a church, you have to be converted. And with conversion comes a local assembly that you're supposed to commit yourself to, and put yourself under the leadership and the authority and the protection and the shepherding of the elders or the pastors of that assembly. So clearly, drunkenness is a sin. Many scriptures we could look to. In fact, 
in passages like Galatians chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians 6, we are reminded that if that's someone's lifestyle, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So if someone, you know, we like to call them alcoholics today. Well, he's an alcoholic. Well, you know, that's kind of a a tainted word in my judgment. It softens the sin itself. And so it's not homosexuality. It's not a perversion. It's not something that's unnatural. We call it same-sex attraction or misplaced father love or all the different terms that have been used over the decades. God calls it sin. He calls it an abomination. And if someone's lifestyle is that of a drunkard, they're giving clear evidences that they have not been converted. Now, that doesn't mean that when someone comes to Christ out of a drunkard background, or you could say an alcoholic background, if you want to use that term, that they're not going to struggle with this. So every once in a while, you'll hear some testimony of someone who said, well, I got saved. I never wanted to have another drop of alcohol. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not normative. Most of the time, a person who's come out of an alcohol background will struggle with it, but because they have a new nature. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, and that new nature brings them in a new direction. They want to change that lifestyle. And sometimes uh, we'll send people to places like Elam Home uh, up in um, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, or um, another place up in Boone, North Carolina, where they're there for 60, 90 days for 24-7 accountability, where They can learn how to live a consistently alcohol-free life. So not only does the Bible condemn alcohol, it also condemns the use of strong drink. What's strong drink? Somebody might say, well, that's whiskey or rum, and I don't drink whiskey or rum or vodka. I just like to have a beer or a glass of wine. Well, listen, you have to always understand what a text meant to the original audience before you can rightly apply it to your own life. When Jesus said, you're blessed when you wash one another's feet, does that mean that we should gather and wash each other's feet? No. When we understand what it means to the original audience, then we can make proper application. And so strong drink was not the distilled alcohols because they're not even developed until almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. We're talking about naturally fermented wine and beer. And God says you're not to use it. He does give an exception in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, he says you can give it to a dying, despairing man, much like we'd give morphine to someone who's in pain today. We're not trying to give him a high or make him a drug addict. We're showing an act of mercy. That's what's in view there in Proverbs 31. So uh, what did they typically do? Strong drink was considered a blessing in Scripture because it was necessary to function and that in those early cultures. Why? Because the water delivery system often had problems. And so when you mix the water with the wine, it purified the water and it killed the bacteria that made it safe to drink. In the 19th century, you might see pictures of missionaries and they have a wineskin around their neck. Why? Because when they would travel and someone would give them water, they would squirt some wine into it from the wineskin it's not the alcohol, it's another component in the wine that would kill the bacteria and make it safe to drink. And generally, both Jews and Christians, we know this from the Talmud, we know it from the Didash, which is a pastoral manual written, dated most by, would put it around 125 AD. It was mixed in a five to one ratio. In fact, I have two articles at searchthescriptures.org 
that might be of interest to you. One written on a very popular level by Robert Stein, and uh, it was actually appeared in Christianity Today at a time when Christianity Today was still written in um, by Bible-believing Christians. And then there's one by uh, Norman Geisler as well. It's a little more technical, a little more Hebrew and Greek in it, but it's readable, I think, for most people, so I've put it up there. Uh, but again, you go back to the original audience. So with that said, we don't allow deacons who use alcohol. Now, this is not a test of membership. Someone might come to our church and they are used to having a beer or a glass of wine. They might say, well, we don't get drunk. But, you know, as they start growing in Christ, you start asking them some questions. Well, tell me, why is it that you like to have a glass of wine? Well, I like the taste. Oh, really? Uh, do you like the taste or do you like the buzz that it gives you? You see, and at what point do we get drunk? I mean, the the, uh, government says a buzzed mind is a drunk mind, and it doesn't take much to get buzzed. Well, someone might say, well, you know, it used to take me a half a glass of wine to get a buzz or maybe a full glass, but now I can drink four before I feel buzzed, so I'm okay. Well, are you telling me then that someone should build a resistance up to alcohol, be buzzed and in violation of the greatest commandment to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength for a period of time? Uh, And then once I've gotten past that, it's okay? No, God does not want us to get drunk or to use strong drink. In fact, it was forbidden of a priest in any respect to use any kind of alcohol. He couldn't even mix his water, so he had to go through a different process. Well, we're believer priests today. (laughs) That would be a good application of those Old Testament texts. So we don't have any leadership that drinks. And I think it's a weak church and a weak pastor or someone who's really uninformed who would think otherwise. And honestly, I don't know of any pastor or Christian in America that God is using with any degree of power and might who uses alcohol. I just don't know of any. I don't see these pastors who speak with power and consistently introduce people into the kingdom who drink. And yet people want to be buddy buddies and they want to snuggle up with the world. They want to see how close we can get to sin without sinning. So I think it's a foolishness, not to mention, just think about the practicality of it. Your son maybe, say, is a teenager and he comes over to his deacon's house and he opens the refrigerator and he sees a six pack of Budweiser. And he reasons, well, my, he's a leader in the church. I guess if he can drink alcohol, it would be okay for me to do it. You know, and parents all the time, they they get frustrated when their kids become teenagers or in college and they start drinking and getting drunk. And well, they modeled it. They modeled it right in their homes growing up with their little wine parties and everything else they do. So this is uh, the day we live in. Alcohol has become very, very loose in its usage. Um, People say, well, you know, they were just old-fashioned back then, 100 years ago. And the seminary I went to for 100 years, you could not serve on the faculty or staff or be enrolled as a student if you used alcohol or tobacco. Well, they changed that. The uh, famous Moody Bible Institute changed their view on alcohol and tobacco. In fact, they said someone could use alcohol, gamble, or smoke in moderation and be in good standing with the Moody Bible Institute. That's why this station that was once a Moody affiliate, we dropped them. 
So to me, that's gross compromise. And that's why they have a 13-story building that's empty that used to be filled and they had a waiting line for people to get in. God's lifting his hand of blessing. That's not to say that it's an evil school or that there are not a lot of good people there. But, you know, you take a small turn. If you, if you have a railroad track and it's off one degree, you go a mile and you're still pretty much on course. But when you go 30 miles down the track, you find out you're way off course. So um, I, I would suggest, I would I would. I would find another church. Um, anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, our next question, it comes from Thomas out of Savannah, Georgia. He says, I have a boss that is overwhelming. He sees the wrong in everything, but never sees the right that is being done. Can you give some indication either from the Bible or from your own experience when we should consider moving to another job? Well, you know, sometimes there are bosses that are difficult to work with, and Paul recognized this in the first century. And so, Thomas, who's just called in from Savannah, let me read to you from Colossians chapter 4. He says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping and learning it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So he speaks of what masters should do in terms of treating their slaves, and he has just said, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters. Today we might say those who are your employers. Now understand, the Bible is not sanctioning slavery. But in the first century when Rome, the Roman Empire is the ruling empire, when the New Testament is written, when they conquered a people, they didn't imprison them all, they made them all slaves. You might be a doctor slave or a teacher slave or a plumber slave or whatever terminology we'd want to apply to it. There's all kinds of slaves, and you were assigned to a family. And so you could be a Christian and have a slave. And he's saying if you're a Christian and you've been assigned a slave by Rome, you don't treat them like dirt because they're your servant. You treat them with respect as Jesus would. And he would say, slaves, if you happen to have a Christian who's a master— then you are to serve him not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So let me just say first that your circumstances do not dictate your joy. And while you may be in a difficult setting, where it's not ideal, your boss, as crummy as he may be, is not to rob you of your joy and your ability to walk with the Lord Jesus. And of course, when you suffer unjustly, and that's kind of what is happening, you're telling me that you're doing what's right, you're being a great employee, but he can't seem to find anything that you do as right. And so the scripture says, for instance, in First Peter, I'm reading chapter 2, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable, kind of like what you have. It sounds like an unreasonable boss if you are indeed portraying him correctly. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. In other words, you get what you deserve. But if when you do what's right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. And then he gives us the prime example for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And think about Jesus. If there was ever a perfect master or boss, uh, he was the most perfect who ever laid his feet on earthly sod. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And of course, he goes on and reminds us that it results in our salvation. So I'm not saying you shouldn't leave. And again, I, I'm, I, I want to be fair to your boss because sometimes, and, and I'm sure, Thomas, you're accurate, but sometimes people come in and they tell me what a crummy boss they have. And the reality is, is they're a crummy worker and um, they don't see some of their own blind spots. But I'm assuming here that, and I don't know this caller from anything, I'm assuming that you're portraying him as accurate. Then it might be that God wants you to continue working for him. And it might be that when you serve him like you're serving the living God, like you're serving Christ, even though he, you know, treats you lousy, that God will use that to bring him into the kingdom. In fact, right after he illustrates with Christ who suffered unjustly, in the next verse in chapter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. In the same way as what? In the same way that Christ was treated unjustly, and yet he endured it patiently. In the same way that slaves have a crummy boss, but they still not with eye service, but with from the heart they serve their master in a way that would please the Lord. He's saying to wives, uh, if you have a husband who's disobedient to the word, continue in this suffering unjustly. You know, he's not talking about being beaten up black and blue. Um, Why? That you might win your husband without a word. So very often it's these internal qualities, in this case your chaste and respectful behavior, that God uses to bring conviction on an unbelieving spouse, or in your case an unbelieving boss, or maybe in your case a disobedient, out-of-fellowship Christian. He could use all the above. Again, that's not to say you shouldn't quit, but you don't want to quit unless, A, you have a place to go to, and God's provided something different, and you would really want to pray through that. You don't want to put your family in some kind of financial turmoil and hurt your testimony further because you can't pay your bills. So you want to think that through carefully. Listen to your wife. She's your helpmate. Uh, And it might be that if God opened another door for you to serve, that would be an excellent time to have a heart-to-heart with your boss. Maybe you'll be able to help him. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, our next question comes in as anonymous. They write, the Bible talks about our Heavenly Father, but this listener has heard some people talk about a Heavenly Mother. Is there such a thing? No, there's not. And so God has manifested himself as a male. Jesus didn't come as a woman, by the way. When God incarnated himself, he came as a man. And so, again, this is not to say that women are worthless or anything like that. But when people, preachers, talk about, you know, their heavenly mother or they refer to God as she, 
These are just lost people who are defying the clear revelation of Scripture. Remember, everything we believe is to be based on something. And you can base it on the fallenness of the world that we live in and the liberalism that denies the infallibility of Scripture, or you can base it on what God has revealed in Scripture. So God reveals himself with male leadership characters, and that's how we are to refer to him. When you pray, say, our father, not our mother. And so um, there's no such thing. And if you are sitting under a church like that, you should leave immediately because you're in an apostate, woke church that's worth nothing. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Ruth out of Atlanta, Georgia. She says, could you offer a general synopsis of the book of truth in Daniel? More importantly, why was it sealed until the end? When will it be reopened and why? Postscript, you have mentioned a study on Daniel, but I cannot find it on the YouTube channel. Okay, so um, I know they have been working now and have put search the scriptures on YouTube just recently. Our director of radio and communications, Rick Forstner, has done that. But that's typically where you're not going to find all the sermons. You will find some on YouTube. CommunityBibleChurch.us has a YouTube channel. Your best opportunity would be to go to Search the Scriptures. So you can go to SearchTheScriptures.org. We also have an app on your phone, which is the most popular thing I think we ever did, because people can be out cutting the grass or out for a walk, and they can be listening to messages. So if you downloaded the App Store, the Search the Scriptures app, it looks kind of like a blue triangle. You'll see it. You can click on Daniel under the search bar, and it'll bring up all the messages on Daniel. And Daniel, by the way, is the book I preached right before Revelation because uh, it's really the schematic for future things. And if you can understand Daniel it will really open up the book of Revelation to you. There's an assumption when John writes the Revelation that the readers have some understanding of Daniel. With that said, your question comes from Daniel 10, and I've just flipped there. And I'm reading now from the New American Standard in verse 21. He says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Or in a couple of translations, like the Net Bible, the ESV, they render it the Book of Truth. So you could translate it the Book of Truth or the Writing of Truth. It doesn't change anything. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So um, he doesn't tell us. He just introduces us. Chapter 10 is an introduction. It's a prologue to um, what he's going to uncover here in chapter 11. And if you're familiar with chapter 11, it divides into two halves, two sections. Uh, The first section is found in verses uh, 1 to 35, and and it goes back to a prophecy that was made in Daniel chapter 9. It's called the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. So I have four messages concerning chapter 9 that would be very, very helpful. And so there was this prophecy where He actually gives a mathematical equation as to how we could identify the time frame in which the Messiah will come. It's the first 69 weeks. And then there's a gap of time between the 69th and 70th week. And there's often 
prophecies like that in Scripture. A baby will be born to us, okay? That's the incarnation. The governments will rest on his shoulders. That didn't happen at the first coming. That happens at the second coming. And so sometimes there's verses that give the entire prophetic picture of what the Messiah will do from beginning to end. And so the 70 weeks prophecy has a gap between it. We call it today the church age. Christ is building his church. The church will be removed in the 70th week. It's called in the New Testament the Great Tribulation. It's called by Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble, and it's designed to bring the nation of Israel to repentance and to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. And so in the first 35 verses, he deals basically with prophetic history as it relates to the first 69 weeks. And then when you come to verse 36 through 45, and this is all future from the time frame of which Daniel is writing, but when you read verses 36 to 45, it's speaking of the events in the 70th week that lead up to the second coming of Christ. And just as all of the prophecies in the first 35 verses were literally fulfilled to the nth degree, you can expect the prophecies concerning the 70th week or the final seven years leading up to the second coming to be fulfilled in the exact same way. So when are these things going to be opened up to the Jewish people? During the 70th week. Where are most Jewish people today? They are in unbelief. They reject Jesus as a Savior. But that is going to change. Once the church is removed, God is going to, we're not told how, but he's going to convert 144,000 Jewish men who are going to call on Jesus in faith, and they're going to become his missionaries and evangelists to the world. They will preach during those final seven years, along with two witnesses, along even with an angel. And the world will be evangelized in a lot of respects uh, during that time frame. So the Jews will be pouring over this portion of Scripture. They'll be looking at Daniel's 70-week prophecy. They'll be looking at passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, and they'll be studying the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because they're going to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, and these books will be opened up to them. Why? Because they've opened their hearts up to the Lord in response to his stirring. So good question. You might want to, again, that's a very short answer, but download the Search the Scriptures app, listen to the book of Daniel, Listen to chapters 10 and 11. Let's go to our next person. All right, we have a live caller on line two. Good morning, caller. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Walter and Pastor Carl. Uh, in discovery class this Sunday, we uh, were talking about eternal security, and I just had a question about how the Roman Catholics reconcile their sin of presumption with the pretty clear New Testament um, verses or scriptures about our eternal security, and I'll, I'll hang up and listen to that. Yeah, no, great. I mean, there's so many issues like what you're referring to. Okay, there's eternal security, there's the perpetual virginity of Mary, the sinlessness of Mary, uh, doctrine after doctrine, salvation by grace plus works instead of grace alone. All of these doctrines, one after another, the doctrine of purgatory and so forth. And so when Luther nailed to the door of the church his 95 theses or assertions where the church had veered from what the Scripture said, 
he was affirming the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so how do they justify it? It's called the magisterium. The magisterium is the teaching arm of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they would basically say that you cannot interpret Scripture for yourself, that you need someone to do it. And the verse that they use out of context is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Stop. There it is. Peter, they would call him the first pope, though the first pope didn't surface until about 575 A.D., when the bishop in Rome became the predominant bishop and they called him the Pope. Nonetheless, here's Peter, the first Pope, saying that no matter, no prophecy of Scripture a matter of one's own interpretation. Therefore, you don't really need to read the Bible. What you need to read is the catechism. What you need to read is the church's interpretation of the Bible since you're stupid, ignorant, and you can't read it and study it for yourself. That's basically what they're saying. And they're saying that the only right interpretation of Scripture is what comes from, you know, the church itself. But again, if we kept reading, again, let me just back it up. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. His point is, is that the Scripture, the prophetic nature, the revelation that has been codified in these 66 books didn't come from a man's will, will, but it came from God, not by an act of a human will, but God moving men along by the Holy Spirit. And and the picture here for moved is that of a sail that's being filled with wind and it's moving the boat along. So while God uses the personalities and writing styles of some 40 human authors, he moves them along. He inspires them by the Holy Spirit that what they wrote did not originate with them, but from God. So they take a verse Verse First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, out of context. They don't read it with verse 21. They don't read it in the broader of context of Scripture, where we're exhorted to study the Scripture, to let the Word of God richly dwell in your heart. When I was a little boy in the Catholic Church, we couldn't read the Bible. You basically did not read the Bible. And then, of course, someone came out with some paraphrase versions, and Catholics started reading some of these paraphrase versions, and so they, they couldn't control it, so they controlled some of the paraphrases and uh, made some of their own or put their own imprimatur on it, but still they have not changed their position in centuries, and that is is that ultimately the only correct interpretation of the Scripture is what the church deems to be true. Now, you can see the fallacy of teaching eternal security in light of how they teach a man is justified. If a man is justified by grace alone through faith alone, 
if indeed salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And again, in their whole doctrine of salvation or soteriology, they they take verses out of context like James, faith without works is dead. You see, a man is not justified by faith alone. And and they take them out of context where James is dealing not with the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. And they argue that it's faith plus works that's safe. In fact, in the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568 over a number of different meetings, they came up with a document. And I think it's Canon 68 or 69. I'd have to have it open before me. But it says something to this effect. Anyone who teaches that justification or salvation is by grace alone and that good works do not in any way contribute to that salvation let him be, and they use Paul's words, anathema. It's a very strong word. It means damned to hell. Well, so if you aren't saved by grace alone, then logically no one could have assurance of salvation because how would you know until you died whether you did enough good works or the good works you did well enough to please God to bring you over the top? You can't know that. And so they would call it the sin of presumption. And again, you know, since they're in the driver's seat and since you're ignorant and stupid and can't read the Bible and understand it for yourself, and that's not to say that people haven't read the Bible and misrepresented it. And so there's some aspect of truth there that, you know, I always tell people as a general principle, if it's new, it's not true. If you see something that no one else has seen in, you know, 6,000 years of recorded history and uh, 4,000 years of Bible history, then then you've probably misunderstood the text. So anyway, um, it, it's a good question, but that's that's the gut of it. Let's go to the next uh, question. On our next question, we have a live caller on line three. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, Pastor Carl. My name is uh, Walter Murray. Uh, I, first, I want to say how grateful I am uh, for your ministry and how your ministries impact my life and my study of the Word of God, and I'm so thankful for you. My question is, and I'll get out of the way, is, is I'm in your study on Revelation. Um, I know at the midpoint that uh, the Jews uh, leave Jerusalem and head toward the mountains, but I have a gap here I'm trying to figure out. By the time this army from the east comes, are they coming to retake Jerusalem from the Jews? Have the Jews come back into Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem, or did they never completely leave? It's a great I'll, question. I'll, I'll yeah, no, question great, on. great. Where, where, where are you calling from, Walter, out of curiosity? What state I'm do you live? I'm calling from a small town in eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky. Kentucky. Okay, good. All right, let me respond. So, um, And I'm going to actually cover a little bit of these issues this Sunday. Some people have the false view that one, just because you're Jewish, you're going to heaven. It's called dual covenant theology. Some have accused John Hagee of teaching this. Uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other where he stands on this, but uh, in either case, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you are right with God. A Jew had to come to faith, and that's why even in the Old Testament there are Jews who perish, and on one occasion they're swept up alive 3,000 right into Hades itself as a judgment of God and unrighteous Hades. When you come into the New Testament, you have to be a Jew for Jesus, so to speak. 
for their salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given under, among men by which we must be saved. So when the Bible speaks about all Israel being saved, it's speaking of true Israel, not all who are descended of Israel, meaning Jacob, represent true Israel, Paul will say in Romans 11. So there has to be a personal conversion that will take place. And when he speaks about them looking, Zechariah the prophet, on him whom they pierce, and they will mourn as one would mourn for his only son or for a firstborn, He's talking about believing Jews who had already come to faith. So they're not coming to faith at the moment they see Jesus in the sky. And that's how sometimes their conversion is posited. Then God would be dealing on a different level with Jews than he would with Gentiles. When Jesus shows up in the sky, it's too late. You're either right with him or you're not. You can't get right with him at that moment. But in either case, you know, uh, the Jewish people are going to be converted during the tribulation, largely in the first half, through the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists along with the two witnesses. And there will be an angel a little bit later on who will preach the gospel, the eternal gospel. And the whole world is going to hear the plan of salvation. But not every Jew is going to be converted. And not every Jew who's going to be converted is going to be sensitive prophetically to what the Lord said in the Olivet Discourse. There will be Jewish people pouring over the Olivet Discourse where Jesus gave a warning, when you see certain events take place, and one in particular, what he calls in Matthew 24 and verse 15, the abomination of desolation. That's when the Antichrist, and we know from not just the Revelation, but we also know from Daniel chapter 9 that that happens right at the midpoint of the seven years. When the abomination of desolation takes place, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and so on and so forth. Flee. Why? Because it's a mark of faith, and it's a mark of wisdom, because things are going to unfold against the Jews like they have never seen. In fact, uh, they already had kind of a dress rehearsal in 70 AD where In a different context, Jesus talks about when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, get out of Dodge. And the Jewish Christians who understood what Jesus had said, they left and their lives were spared. The Jewish Christians who weren't prophetically alert or didn't think it was a big deal, uh, they were destroyed along with the unbelieving Jews when Titus came in in 70 AD and had a siege around the city and starved them out and Yes, it was a it was a bloodbath, um, and so a lot of the Jews are going to flee to the mountains. Many would say that this would be Petra, and there's probably a good chance, indeed, it is. So I wouldn't be dogmatic on that. You can't be dogmatic on it because there's not a verse that specifically says it. But I think that's probably what's in view uh, in the wilderness of uh, of Jordan, which was once part of Israel. And indeed, it will probably be Petra. In either case, um, there will be believing Jews who will respond, but there will be Jews, even unbelieving Jews, who will not respond. Remember, two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to die during the time of the tribulation. That doesn't mean it will be all unbelievers who will die, but believers as well. And many will still be in the capital when Armageddon takes place. And so there's coming a battle, a campaign where all the nations of the world, and nations are not just purely geopolitical um, 
boundaries like Germany or France or England or the United States, but all the ethnoi, the the nations, the Gentiles, the ethnicities of the world that often are reflected in a particular geographical location. There was a time when, for instance, France was mainly French people, that ethna, and uh, same with Germany. That's all changed, but the nations, the peoples of the world are going to go against Israel. And there's going to be a great bloodbath and that God is going to destroy uh, those nations of the world that will come against them. And there'll be some of God's people who did not flee to the wilderness or miss the opportunity. They were not quick enough. In fact, Jesus said, who's ever in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Um, he, he warns, you know, don't even, if you're on the housetop, don't go back in and re- retain your property. Get out of Dodge. You have no time to waste. And those who will be studying this, they'll, they'll, they'll pay attention to that. In fact, it will get so bad what will follow, Jesus makes it very clear, then there will be great tribulation. So we go from tribulation, first three and a half years, to great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And so the trumpet and bold judgments really happen in the second half. And then he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So God will end those days because he's going to fulfill his promises, not just to the Jewish people, but also to the church, and that Messiah is going to literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. And he wouldn't have anyone to reign with if everybody were killed and slaughtered. So um, so anyway, but listen to Sunday's sermon. I'll be putting some more of that together then. Appreciate it, Walter. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next question comes in anonymous. They write, what is a wife to do about a husband who professed being a Christian when they married and for years showed the fruit of a Christian, but recently has been living a lifestyle that belies his profession? Well, you need to pray for him. You probably need to fast for him. You don't need to dump him, uh, you know, unless you're being physically harmed or the children's lives are in jeopardy then you might have a biblical basis to separate, but not even to remarry, because Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 7, because he assumes that there will be some settings where it will be necessary just for the well-being of your body, which is a temple of the Spirit. And so he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, What are her options? She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Or if the shoe's on the other foot, that the husband should not leave or divorce his wife. And so his point is, is this is something the Lord taught and Jesus spoke to these issues. And Paul is just applying the teaching of Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, 18, Romans 7 of what the Lord said concerning the permanency of marriage. And so um, you need to stick it out. And I know people say, well, I'm abused. Well, how are you abused? Does he hit you? No, he's never laid a finger on me, but he yells at me. Okay. Well, I hate that for you, but that's not a reason to get rid of your husband. In fact, it would go back to a text we read early from 1 Peter 3 to a wife who's in a setting whose husband is disobedient to the word uh, that you submit, you respect him, You try to win him how? By your chaste and respectful behavior. How will you be able to do that? By not simply focusing on the external, but on the internal. 
on the hidden person of the heart because you will, if you just focus on the external and in the process you ignore building the internal qualities, you're going to fold under a situation like that. And you'll return evil for evil instead of giving a blessing instead, as he'll go on to describe. So stick with him, pray for him, maybe fast for him. Hey, he may not be saved. You know, there's a lot of folks who are not saved. There's one of two options. He's either A, not converted, or B, he is converted and he's out of fellowship with God. And if he's out of fellowship with God, then he really can't be a very happy person. There's pleasure in sin for a season, a short time. That's what makes temptations real. But ultimately, there's misery. Why? Because we're called to walk by the Spirit. Why? That we might not carry out the desires against the flesh. For the flesh and the Spirit are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. There's a war within that the Christian knows that the unbeliever doesn't know. His conscience, through habitual sin, just becomes seared and callous, where he can sin with seemingly no consequence. It doesn't bother him anymore. But not so with the born-again believer. Not to mention, if he is born again, there's chastisement. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We come under the discipline of God Almighty. So stay with him and speak the truth in love. You know, you might want to, and again, I don't know the logistics of what you're saying, like uh, what kind of things he's engaged in. Sadly, today, men get involved in pornography and sensuality. We're living in a culture that's just buried in immorality. And I don't know what your husband's into, but speak the truth in love and talk to him and pray for him and let him know that you're asking God to to do a miracle. So look, I, I know today I'm speaking to some people that are in troubled marriages. And so you need to be growing, even if your husband is not. So make sure you're in the best, healthiest church. And if you're listening in another state like Kentucky, last caller, um, work through something like the um, basic discipleship course that's online. It's a course we teach at Community Bible Church. It's 45 weeks long. So some people came to Christ on Sunday night, and I invited them next Sunday at 9.15 or 11. You can go to either worship service. Go to the Discovery class. The Discovery class at CBC is the basic discipleship online at searchthescriptures.org. So about 21 weeks of the 45 weeks are now up online. I would say to someone, if they really understood those truths, they would be a growing Christian. And God would develop love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But a lot of Christians are stunted in their spiritual growth. They've remained babies in Christ. And so you need to be growing. Don't let anything interfere with that. Obviously, your husband's not acting like a spiritual shepherd. So if you have children and I don't know, you're going to be the one who's going to build into their lives. Ask the kids to pray for dad. And you love those kids. You teach those kids. You walk with God. Stick it out. Things can turn around by the grace of God Almighty. Well, we're out of time. You hear the music, but thank you again for joining us today for the Bible Line. This Sunday at Community Bible Church, we'll continue God's prophetic schedule as we're doing a series on that, and we'll have a live stream meeting immediately after the second service for those who are interested in going to Israel in September of 2023. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus.